listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. I'm joined today by Shaquille Ahmed, Greg Cox, Andy Edwards, and Keith Price to discuss the cyber warfare mentality. Before we delve deeper into the topic, uh, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Shaquille, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Yeah, thank you, Rob. Um, yeah, my name is Shaquille Ahmed. I work as a VP security consulting for NTT. Um, and in terms of my passion, um, cyber warfare thinking is my passion these days because I've recently been engaged with an initiative where we are setting up a training institute, uh, which will, which is called Cyber Warfare Academy, basically. So um, apart from my day job, that is my, my passion as well, outside work. Thank so, you. Thanks go. And Greg? Afternoon, everybody. Greg Cox, currently employed as the Head of Information Security for KPMG Consulting Services in the UK, but currently seconded out to Saudi Arabia. So writing, strangely enough, doing quite a bit on cyber warfare in an offensive and defensive capability for a large government client. Prior to that, 25 years in the military looking after cyber and information assurance. Uh, hello, Robert. Thank you for having me today. Uh, my name is Keith. I currently serve as the chief security officer for a startup called Decipher Cyber. Uh, I've worked 30 years in tech, 20 of which centered around security, and my passion is building and developing teams to meet the security challenges of the future. Many, many thanks for having me. And finally, Andy. Cool. Um, I'm the group CISO at Battlefield Bank, which is a private bank. Um, before that, I've worked in cyber warfare for multiple defense companies and always work. There's more to develop people team capabilities, but mostly in a, currently in a defensive position, but more in a Throughout my career has always been in the more the black hat scene. So fantastic. Great stuff, great stuff. So great, then now we're all introduced. Um, let's move on to the topic and focus. Um, so we all had a question uh, or statement around cyber warfare mentality. Uh, as usual, I'll work around the room, asking each individual to um, pose a question and the reasons behind it. And each will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So um, we'll start with Shaquille. Um, do you like, Shaquille, would you like to pose your question? Yeah, so my, my question is what benefits are to be gained by the businesses uh, to treat cybersecurity with the cyber warfare mentality? Um, and the context of that question primarily is that as we look around um, and uh, we, we see that the, the parameter is gone, right? Um, the, the concept of uh, running a company behind a defined border, uh, it does not apply anymore uh, within the cyberspace. So you can very well be operating in the UK, uh, but equally you are still exposed to uh, threats from all across the globe. So we're in, in reality, um, armed forces will be capable of guarding the territory and the borders. Um, the borders no longer exist, right? Um, and we, we've, we've been through several approaches around how we can throw technology to solve that problem. But uh, this question basically stems on, yes, technology is good, but it's also about developing that uh, psychological capability or acumen within the team. Um, most of the, the managers and, and CISOs are running those teams to, to be able to react to those threats. 
right? Um, so if if there is an attack on your organization, for example, you have the right technology, but if you're missing that right mindset um, and you crumble under pressure, uh, you can't take a decisive decision right away, uh, then your business is still exposed to that side because despite all the tools, despite all the machinery available to hand, um, you, you just did not take the right decision at the right time with the right attitude, right? Um, so that is the context of this question. I'll, I'll stop here. Good stuff. And Greg, up to you for your three thoughts on that. So you bring a great point up there, Shaquille, in that but I will, I will, I will say one thing. There are borders with cybersecurity, specifically with offensive cybersecurity from a military perspective. So, if a cyber attack from a sovereign country on another sovereign country, which is quite obviously apt at present, is deemed an act of war, whether that's in cyberspace, but you're breaching their sovereign territory. So, when you've got a border, whether that be a cyber border or a physical border, an encroachment is is just that. But one other point that you, you sort of what really sort of perks my interest is is culture, and you bring a great point up with culture. Our organisations culturally set up to focus on security and more importantly cybersecurity. And from my experience in across a, a various number of organisations, looking after clients as well at like KPMG, no, they're not. The, the culture is is not, and you, you see that with amount of phishing scams. So uh, all them other good things that text message scams, there's all there's all and smishing or whatever they want to call them these days. They're coming out with new acronyms constantly. So culture needs to change. But how do you change culture? Is that through that's got to be through education, but it's also got to be through real life experience. And you have to bring that back down to take it away from techie speak and bring it into what everyday non-technical audiences understand. And as I say, I have this conversation where a number of sort of board level people at organizations we we consult with how do you do it and it's got to come from a top down and a bottom up approach that's that that's my opinion because they've got to meet somewhere in the middle you've obviously got to have a buy-in from the board to sort of drive it and push it but you've also got to have your buy-in from your people because without your people your organization is always going to be as weak as its weakest link to to, to to coin an age-old phraseology, and as I say, that's this just it's it's a great as I say it's a great challenge for any organisation, and I think no organisation is one hundred percent security focused on culture, and solar winds. There's all manner of breaches when people who sell it are not secure, and big as I said, big thing is is culture, and without that drive from culture, it's I think that. I don't know. I won't say it's a losing battle, but I think we've got a long road ahead of us till people switch on and and sort of push push towards a security awareness culture, and that's in everything they do. Thanks, Greg. Any stuff, Andy? Yeah, cool. So I I pick up on some parts of it. So um, the approach, you know, so a lot of companies will invest a lot of money in, like, say, defensive postures and. They'll listen to the suppliers on this will protect them, whether that be your latest XDR or EDR. But I think one thing that fundamentally a lot of people forget these days is the instant response mentality and not so much um, cyber instant response, but as Shakir mentioned, the when the attack does happen, people panic, they don't make the right decisions quick enough or, and, or even just conveying the message from the bottom down to the top 
But fundamentally, within our lives, we all deal with incidents every day and you will react to an incident in a different way. The way in which you get around it is just making sure that people know how the reaction works. It's just like everything, every type, type of reaction has a different outcome. So within the cyber context, you'll see blue teams, they'll be trained to expect an event to become an incident. As we're um, within companies, people who are more, I suppose, red team focused are trained to cause events, right, and detect. But it, it's never quite the same, never comes the way. You, it's not the way the attack has come. Take the not petier attack. Well, um, I was on the incident response. I was probably I was one of the first at Maersk to respond to when I worked at Deloitte. Nobody expected, Maersk wasn't the company that was being attacked, right? It was a, it was a Ukrainian accountancy piece of software. They were just fallout. So when the attack came, um, most got taken out and, and it, they were complete, you know, they were, it was collateral damage. Nobody knew how to react because there wasn't an attacker attacking them. It was, it, it, it was just working that way. So, um, and you know, it, it was, it was more devastating from the third party perspective of receiving to, than the current actual target. So I think the way around it is, it's more ed, education and culture is important, right? You, you experience attacks, whether it be, um, just you know, not outside of the, the cyber world, whether it be an argument outside of the place, you, um, it could be in the street, it could be within road rage within a car, but you know what your response is. Now within cyber, it works the same way. Um, the best way to upgrade the culture, you can give all the awareness you want. A lot of people won't always take it seriously. They'll always take it, like, this is mandatory, I have to do this, I'll take this box to get it done out of the way. And it's never going to happen to us anyway, because we have loads of money in software and we have the best SOC team and everything else. But the way in which we've done it and the way in which other companies do it is run that simulation, putting people in those scenarios. So the you know your red teams, if you don't have your in-house red teams, bring the red teams in to work with your blue team so they can understand it. And then from the other level, work with the top level so they can see this is what this incident means to me as 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 an analyst. It means that I need to respond in this way and because you, know, you learn the attacks from a board level perspective, you need to say, right, this is where we this is where we go with it. So whether it be going to legal, going to comms, going to DR and at what point your responsibility falls in. The big part that makes incidents fall, fail and why the culture gets bad is because everybody feels they have to get involved instantly and it causes a state of panic. So learning the culture from the bottom, so like I say, from the technical perspective, red teams liaising with blue teams, scaling them up so they understand what adversary looks like, but then planning for the unexpected, causing, you know, simulated incidents, so they can see where the breaks in that chain are. So whether it be a board member, you know, knowing he needs to go to legal, knowing he needs to invoke a certain BCP plan and so forth. I think that's, I think that's the way you help, but you can't assume that the incident that instantly a board member knows when you say we've got ransomware that they know what they're going to do. And likewise with a SOC analyst or maybe your third party supplier that's doing it for you. It's always, I think, if you always frame it around the controls you can activate at certain levels and who's responsible, I think that's the way um, you can overcome a lot of that. Okay. Thanks, Andy. And Keith, have you joined us? Yeah, thanks. Uh, good question, Shaquille. So from from my experiences within the U.S. military, uh, I'll be honest, I'm unsure if there are benefits gained uh, within the current cyber warfare mentality. And uh, in the U.S. DOD, uh, they overclassified data 
they overcomplicated processes and they overstretched already strained security resources and all in the name of the uh, quote unquote always assume war mentality. Um, however, benefits can be gleaned by learning from these mistakes and figuring out ways to compensate uh, with solid risk based and risk appetite strategies. Uh, one example is analyzing where the people and processes approach can be appropriately leveraged where technology supports uh, these via cost-effective automation. And a couple other things that were brought up around the culture perspective, and one that makes absolute sense is, you know, you can't uh, dial in culture overnight when the incident is here at your door. You have to exercise, tabletop exercises, bring in all the stakeholders, give them, you know, uh, an understanding of what their role is, uh, and practice, you know, build that muscle memory into an incident so when it happens everybody knows what their role is um, and then that commander of the event which is probably not going to be someone from the cxo uh, can can you know uh, legitimately lead the team uh, fully to victory but at the very least people know who to look to uh you know in crisis great example is the you know president of ukraine right Everybody's looking to this guy. He's a solid example of leadership in time of crisis. And that's what you need within the business. But uh, to be successful, you have to practice for it. So thanks. Thanks for that, Keith. And anything else to add, Shaquille? Are you comfortable with the, those, those answers? Yeah, no, but it's, it's definitely uh, additional learning for me, uh, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, Keith, we'll, we'll come to you next. Uh, you've got your question to pose to the table. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so certain nation states have escalated cyber warfare TTPs uh, for various reasons, be they economic, IP theft, or CNI disruption. Uh, and it's been discussed across various Western allies that a hack back strategy may be worth pursuing. What are your thoughts uh, on the efficacy and associated risks of such a strategy? Stuff and uh, come to you first, Andy, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I suppose this is this is one that's probably I work close with, um, coming from this background, working with multiple governments over the years. Um, I, I, I suppose um, so the, the mentality is, is, is quite a tricky one, and kind of in a way feeds into my question. But um, it, it's a lot of it's down to collateral, right? And it's about having that the mentality to strike back, but knowing what you're striking. So take for instance. It's very rare that the person attacking you will come from their own infrastructure or they'll attack you straight from their own doorstep, if you will. They'll tend to compromise other systems, could even be critical systems and launch attacks from there. Now, there, you know, there are multiple laws around depending what you, you know, what jurisdiction in the world you're in and so forth against doing it. But a lot of companies and a lot of militaries will have um, strike back functionalities in other countries to launch. But I think the big issue is is that not always knowing and you know during an incident you don't have time to do all the odds in and figure out who you're attacking what the systems they're coming from but if the collateral was you stop the attack but in the same stage you were to disable a hospital because that's probably maybe they were launching the attack from there maybe you're depending on what your strike back functionality was denial of service could take an internet service provider it could it could take out another company a third party or so forth and you kind of you kind of open up onto almost a vigilante warfare and i suppose you have to be careful is that 
when your investment goes, everybody invests from a defensive perspective, that you don't then start going, well, actually, look, let's keep investing in offensive. Your defensive goes down and your first thought is just to strike back. It's just to do that counter strike because then you kind of lose that balance. So I, I suppose, yeah, trying it, it works, but I suppose it's down to your level of intelligence that you possess and your capability um, first. So I think strike back is, I think it should you know, in cyber warfare should be implemented, but that should be the 10% of your strategy, not your 50-50 decision. So yeah. Thanks very much, Andy. And yourself, Greg? So I'll pick up on a point Andy's just made with regards to strike back. As I said, I've just literally written a comprehensive sort of doctrine, policies, and, and shall we say, con, con ops for a, a large government organisation. And offensive cyber operations need to be closely coordinated, not just from a sort of the offensive capability, but also from a national strategy. So as uh, Keith said, it's got to come from a risk appetite. And if you're getting attacked, it leaves it leaves obviously an open for it leaves an opening to to strike back. But and this is ex-soldier me being sort of fighting the urges here. What what you've got it's got to be a joined up effect. If you're looking at it from a from a from a purely military perspective, it's got to be a joined up effect. So what effect are you wanting to have? You you, you quite often learn more from a, from an attack on your infrastructure than you will do from ever attacking back on on, a, on an adversary's or a potential adversary's infrastructure and it's 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 a balance and it always has been with with sort of military mili military operations uh risk risk appetite what what is it who sets that risk so looking looking from a national setting that's got to come through your national defense strategy your national security strategies and that's got to come down from obviously from from the top from the government and from a purely sort of offensive capability as i've said already as soon as you leave your own cyberspace it's it, it is it is an act to war and it's it's that it's that finite it's that finite balance that you've got to strike and as i say I'd, I'd, is, is there a right answer to this it's I think we've got to be led by by our politicians, and I hate saying that, but but ultimately there's got to be there's got to be leadership from the top, and this leads into my question, which obviously we'll come on to sh shortly. But I don't, what, what I'm gonna try. So NCSC, for instance, in UK, a very very good organisation, and some of their sort of initiatives, some of their things are very very good, but nowhere in their sort of piece does it mention offensive cyber. Uh, for obvious reasons, and as I say, and from a, shall we say, we'll use Russia because we know they're doing it. And, and other week before they actually invaded Ukraine, they there was a, a coordinated attack on the UK energy sector, which didn't succeed. But they were they actually had a push at the UK energy sector. So what we don't obviously we're not informed because we're not sat at national cyber security center and we're sort of national uh, national offensive team what they did to to obviously counteract that i should think that there will have been some remediation action but as i say it's 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 a, it's a murky world okay thank you very much Greg. 
Yourself, Shaquille? Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I agree with uh, with with, with Craig and Andy in in the responses. Yeah, uh, for, for from that point of view, I I do believe that hackback strategy should always be one of the options on the table. Uh, but the concerns are are quite a lot for now for it to be a practical solution to to what we are seeing across the globe. Um, like just building on on what Andy said that attribution is is nearly impossible. No one is going to use their own infrastructure to attack you. So unless you have the right level of intelligence, you might end up uh, attacking um, the, the victims, actually, whose infrastructure is being used through botnets, for example, to, to come after you. Um, there, there are lots of security researchers. All this set intel that we gather, most of that comes to security researchers. Some of them could be uh, mistaken for launching an attack and then become a victim if you if you just use hackback as your st- only strategy or or maybe too soon. Um, equally, it's, it's easy to cause collateral damage. Um, like like in, in case of hospitals, the example was given, like what if you, you end up attacking that, that hospital, which, which is unknowingly being involved in that attack? So, so those are the, the technical ramifications. But on the other side, coming to the politics, as uh, Gregory mentioned, that um, we, we need to have a clear path of oversight. We, we need to understand when hackback could be an option that can be utilized. It it cannot be decided on the whim. There has to be a framework put in place, uh, which we we don't have currently, right? And it, it definitely becomes responsibility of the government and and maybe a, a joint effort between uh, public sector and private sector and and the uh, defense sector for for that matter to make that call before actually triggering it. Um, and then with with any invasion of of such kind. The, the legal ramification. So, so there is there is a question of uh, uh, declaring an act of war by encroaching into someone else's uh, cyberspace. Uh, but, but equally, there there would be legal ramifications if if you end up in their territory. What kind of um, maybe civil laws you are uh, breaking? Um, maybe GDPR. You end up having access to data and then all those kind of things. I know the onus is on the other side to protect it, uh, but but um, it. It will be a, a challenging task to, to have understanding of all those legal ramifications. So to, to sum it all up from, from my perspective, it should be an option, but, but with all these considerations. So looking from that angle, we, we are quite far away from using that as an effective strategy to just now. Right. Thanks again. Anything lights out on that, Keith? Oh, yeah, thank you all for your uh, considered answers. I I would just, I think I would just like to point out, I know attribution is tough, you know, we're getting better, but there's a recent example uh, as reported in Wired magazine about a security researcher who was a target amongst other security researchers, target of North Korea. And, uh, you know, he, he relied on the U.S. government to help out and do the right thing and nothing came of it. So he decided, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And he shut down North Korea's internet for a while. So, uh, you know, that's a hackback strategy by somebody, you know, sitting in their pajamas and slippers at home who has the capability and knows for sure, you know, can do the forensics to find out, you know, who was behind uh, the attack against them personally. But that's very rare. And as the rest of the esteemed gentlemen in the room have said, you know, we have to be very careful because we could actually end up causing more damage uh, through the hackback or the strikeback strategy than uh, we intended. Great. Thanks, Zachary. Okay, so over to you, Greg. Do you want to pose your question? Yeah, so excuse sort of 
it's government specific, so it leads leads quite on from quite on nicely from other two questions. Do governments as a whole, so we'll use Her Majesty's government or US government in case of Keith, need to do more and offer better national protection to countries from an infrastructure perspective? And also, how do you think they could do it? Let's start with Keith. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, as you said earlier around NCSC, you know, I think they do a very good job in the UK uh, supporting businesses of all sizes and maturity, uh, including protecting everyday citizens in their home environment. And with the work from home and the hybrid working looking to be here to stay, NCSC uh, has itself excelled in many areas of securing netizens in their homes and remote uh, work locations. Compared to NIST uh, in the USA, which is often viewed as very much, you know, expert mode for businesses, UK government programs, at least in the pragmatic people and process areas of security, uh, truly do excel. Um, to your question, though, can uh, governments do more? Of course. And I think, you know, while HMG specifically is getting there, uh, the US government with the, uh, you know, the adoption of the CISA agency, you know, and really putting some funding into that agency, working with global partners, um, but although probably too slowly keeping up with quickly evolving threats, uh, you know, the government, just like education sectors, are, are not known to be as agile as private sector. And that's where, really, the private sector must increase cooperation with governments um, and expand resources working in these spaces. You know, there's some very good examples within, and I think I've seen a couple of your names within these uh, programs that NCSC has, where they're building strategic partnerships across various businesses let's let's look at the big four you know um they used to be very uh precious about maintaining the secrecy of their cyber programs now it's more of a you know industry uh sharing environment uh, to be able to you know um, share threat intelligence to be able to share technologies resources and people you know you know the big um uh sort of skunk works environment, I think, has proven that um, it's not going to negatively infect, uh, affect your bottom line as such, but rather make you a stronger entity as a whole, right? Together, stronger. So uh, I do agree that, you know, governments, you know, they have a ways to go. And I think really it's up to the private sector to become more engaged, uh, you know, to, to, to really put those resources in to, to building a collaborative environment. And I think it's also on larger enterprises, large organizations to also uh, look out for the smaller businesses that are part of their supply chain. Those businesses that can't afford, you know, their own cybersecurity team. I think some of the big players really should be looking out for the people further down, you know, downstream. So uh, excellent question. And thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, yourself, Andy. Thoughts? Yeah, a picture from where Keith left off. Yeah, from the supply chain perspective, I agree. Um, from the government perspective, I suppose more where they can help is more on the framework. You will see more, a lot of the better technology and a lot of what they can do to help will come from the private sector rather than the government sector. Now, I think it's more that um, they rely more on the private sector than um, it should be us relying on them. For the simple reason is, well, I think most of us have already worked in government before, you know how long it takes to turn something around or to get anything done. Now with the private sector, technologies advance quicker 
um, approaches advance quicker, mostly because the money can be spent and moved quicker. So I, I, I think they could do more. Like I said, there's, there's a lot of collaboration already. Um, as already said, you know, NCSE with the Business 100 and so forth, you know, you, you put your analysts in there, you work, you share, you integrate. Um, a lot of the big defense companies like BAE, they, they do, you know, they do quite a lot to scale up, but I'm not sure what, from a technical perspective at least, um, I think the government could open up more pathways, but from more of a, an approach and a funding perspective, I think they just need to collaborate a bit more around maybe critical national infrastructure and not always take the burden on themselves. Um, maybe work closely with companies there because it's in private, it's in the private, the private sector, we can create the, we can work with like bigger companies to create the next best technology or find the, the greatest intelligence. But fundamentally, when it comes to cyber warfare or it comes to the, the state of a fire sale, the key things they're going to look to take up first, the communications, power and so forth, right? They're not going to look to be stealing money from banks. They're not going to be looking denial of services against Microsoft, right? Um, it's where we can help them more, I think, was, was where, where I would look. So I think from what the government could do more is collaborate more on that because they're our supply chain. We rely on them to help with those resources and control them. So I think that that's kind of the, the way I, I'd go with them. More collaboration around the CNI space. Great. Thanks, Andy. Any subscript? Yeah, just to add to that, I, I think one aspect for the government to focus on could be also to uh, make sure that their their own members of the parliament and their their public servants they are up to speed onto the the cyber threats and and cyber awareness. So if if we just look at the example of of the hearing, the Facebook hearing uh, that that went down and the kind of questions that were thrown by the, the members of the government, it it clearly shows that there there is a lack of uh, of understanding of, of how quickly the cyberspace is moving, which which ultimately leads to lack of appreciation of what we are up against. So it, it comes down to a matter of uh, concern management rather than uh, risk management. I mean, they, they, they go hand in hand, but I'm, I'm focusing on concern management uh, from the perception perspective that all of these things are real. We, we, we have parallel lives or we will soon have well-defined parallel lives in cyber um, and government need to at least impart that level of understanding and knowledge to, to the people who run it. So, so that is one thing. The, the other aspect I, I can add to is, is probably that the way governments can focus more in, in this area is to it is by understanding which organizations are important for the economy from like like Andy said about CNI, but also from the economic perspective, from, from the IP setting uh, perspective. And I'm picking up um, uh, words from from Keith's question here, but but just thinking recently about Nvidia hack, um, that that hack if if that goes through, we we still don't know what what has gone down there. But depending on the IP theft, it can be turning into a serious blow to the economy. So I think governments need to definitely look beyond CNI as well. CNI is extremely important, but also look at companies which play a major role um, in their economy. Um, and one way or the other, they are they are connected with, with maintaining a good security posture uh, for, for the nation. Thanks, Shakil. Anything you'd like to add there, Gregory? 
So I've got one 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 sub question, which is which leads on to everything you've said, which government are doing enough in a sort of framework and a sort of cyber essentials plus NIS frameworks for for C, CNI uh, providers. So it's it's more it's more sort of a hypothetical question, and this is sort of it's all it's, this is this is just totally opinion. So military obviously protect their networks with high grade cryptography. Do you think the government should make sort of more cryptography available to private and to, to private sector to allow that level of protection but that would have to be overseen in a sort of management level because of what's associated with it from an NCSC perspective from from a banking perspective I, I sort of I know where that's going to as I say dealing with financial services quite a lot at KPMG but I don't know what what rest 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 of the sort of the panel think on this. So would would we be happy with a like a a, a black network that you plug in and obviously have have feeds have feeds off it into your into your so you've got you've got a secured core network basically a secured UK internet a secured US internet. I I I suppose there's a problem in that too, right? So I mean, so you know, implementing high grade networks. Uh, encrypted networks are great and you know a lot of companies can move, even move a bit quicker than the governments but the problem is is um, take from the insider risk perspective when you've got a high grade uh, secure net encrypted network um, from an insider risk how do you interrogate what's going on so if there's a if you assume there's already a breach right so maybe it's an APT that's been sat in the network for two years it was never detected no threat has ever picked it up at what at what stage then I suppose how would you find that what's going on so you're into like a black core network right so you're talking like, like a black core yeah so um so all the dark infrastructure so we plug in that gives us our level of assurance passing our data through and so forth but any other member that's inside that and i, I get you know obviously you know you, you all have your own keys so you can't see each other's data but at some stage you're going to need to interrogate traffic to, to perform threat hence to find all of that so there will always be a point where that will be intercepted downgraded and and looked in clear text so you could have the highest grade encryption. The target just changes from rather than targeting the in-transit data, targeting those points, and then the control of the trust around the people that operate those terminals. So the, the, the interceptor check on the data coming in and out. You could kind of almost form a way in which you provide an anonymous access for a cyber weapon to, to target out and not quite knowing which direction it came from. Because then if you do know, then is the encryption really of much use that leads on to another question but i'm not gonna go down that rabbit all around vain <laughs> and yeah I'll, I'd, I'd like to give to give a much shorter answer uh from my time in the military the one appliance in the data center that i would like to take a sledgehammer to was our encryptor so my answer is no <laughs> <laughs> good stuff good stuff okay finally uh i'll start over to you andy for your question if you don't mind Okay, so it, it, it's kind of similar to the case, but it's slightly different. So with the rise in offensive capabilities within companies, at what stage of the company consider moving from defensive posture to an offensive posture to combat advanced persistent threats? Um, so just to give the context on this side of it. So um, we all receive intelligence and we know the which way which an attack builds up before it becomes an incident. So um, you see a, a stage of events. Now, 
those events eventually mount up and then an incident occurs. Now you are defending against events, the incident occurs, and now you're fighting the incident, so damage limitation. So to make it differently, do you wait for an incident to occur before you strike back? I mean, or I mean, so I mean, it's it, it just to make this at, at the highest level. And I've had these conversations with board members. If I say to all of you on this call, I'm going to come around your house tomorrow night, I'm going to try and break in. And when I break in, I'm going to beat you up. Are you going to wait for me to break through that door? Or are you going to try and stop me before I break through that door? And the, the same way in which in that case, so when I say companies have a, uh, have an offensive, um, you do every blue teamer wants to be a red teamer. Everybody wants to be a hacker. So your blue teamers do learn to, as well as defend, they learn the attack techniques and they learn whether you have in-house pen testers, in-house red teamers, or just some enthusiastic amateurs. Now, or maybe you have a third party, a call off contract. Do you, uh, do you try and stop that event? Do you allow the, before it becomes a strike back? Because even though you've, you've struck back, same as a nuclear deterrent, right? You wait for them to nuke you and then you nuke them. Well, it's too late. Your country's not, is not, is, has gone. So in which case do you begin that? Now, obviously with the efficacy around, if you've got the right intelligence and you've got the right capability to maybe block that. So take the Korea event, North Korea event that was happened. If they'd seen that as it was building up before it became an incident, if they'd stopped the internet then, would the incident have actually happened? It wouldn't have, it would have been stopped. So that's the question. <laughs> Good stuff, Good stuff. Uh, Shaquille, do you want to say it first? Um, yes, it's quite, quite an interesting one, uh, actually. Uh, but, but yeah, in, in my opinion, um, yeah, if, if you strike back, we were talking uh, again, we are, we are stepping into hackback strategy uh, and, and into hackback domain, right? You, you need to be able to then launch uh, a decent scale of attack um, to neutralize the, the actual threat either before it happens or, or after it happens. I personally think it, it, it falls into into the the realms of discussion we have already had if you just focus on on the hackback aspect of it. But the the way I think the offensive security should be dealt with, it, it should not just focus on on hackback. It, it it can also focus on um, just making your door stronger. So if someone is telling us that they, they will they will break in and they will come and beat us up, um, then why not focus on uh, just just bolting up the door maybe uh, twice as uh, more more powerfully uh, than, than it normally would. I know that won't already work or always work, but I think that that would be my, my first step to do, right, before engaging into that uh, kind of the act of aggression, um, maybe maybe preemptively, right? Uh, for, for me, offensive security, it, it comes down to um, the, the concept of tackling and, and outmaneuvering as well, and, and how do you outmaneuver? We, we can focus more on gaining the right level of threat intel or use that threat intel to do proactive uh, threat hunting. So that is where, where my mind is that instead of thinking about going all in with, with the strike back action, um, we, we, we should rather focus on maintaining the, the proactive posture, which is less aggressive than, than being outright offensive. Thanks, Gil. Yourself, Keith, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I made I made a couple notes on this because I I was a little confused I, I, if I'm honest, uh, but um, 
Andrew uh, definitely fleshed it out a lot better for me because I thought he, maybe he was going for, you know, do we hire uh, cyber mercenaries uh, within our private sector to carry out proxy attacks, which would be kind of cool and, you know, maybe it'll happen. Uh, but I do think now, you know, uh, and, and off the back of Shaquille's, uh, I think it's more of a, the proactive approach, as a- Andrew stated. If we're doing our threat intelligence and we see that something is coming up over the horizon, um, the first thing you want to do is you got to involve, you know, your your government uh, agencies because they're the ones who are uh, authorized to, you know, do that uh, first strike approach, right? Um, it's very, again, we I think we've said it a few times now, it's very dangerous for private industries to try and take uh, an offensive posture uh, to co- to combat, say, an ad- advanced persistent threat. And when we think about that, you know, we're we're thinking about some very te- um, um, groups. You know, Fancy Bear, Muddy Water, APT31, Lazarus Group, right? These are like the top four uh, successful state-sanctioned, state-state-backed threat actors. Uh, and and my initial advice is. Uh, most companies, they're nowhere near the resource or capability to pull off an offensive strike against something like this. But on the other hand, if the plan is to move into persistent red team capability uh, or something along those lines to test your enterprise, then I would say maybe a valuable and cost-effective strategy would be to look at automated methods uh, in this in this area. But it's a very difficult one. And Andrew's question is really, I like it because it stumped me. You know. Um, because it's something that a lot of private industries, like he said, they're talking about it. Why would you sit back and just wait for someone to come over, you know, and punch you in the face? Uh, and it's it's almost like Shaquille says, we can barricade the door and we can put bars on the window. You know, we can do these defense in depth strategies that we, you know, used, you know, we grew up with in the castle and moat defense, you know, concentric circles. That doesn't really work anymore. So how do we how do we defend ourselves and maybe offense? of something, you know, looks, you know, uh, maybe offense of some kind will work. I just don't know what it is yet. So excellent question. Thanks, Keith. And finally, Greg, yourself. I like, I like, I like that idea, but how would you coordinate it is one question that you've got one firm who's been attacked and they decide to obviously go back on the offensive. If it could be coordinated in regions, in in counties, I'm just sort of spitballing here. I think it's a great idea, but then it would need putting under a national umbrella, as we've said, because NCSC and sort of the, the, the government agencies in the UK own that, as do the DOD across, obviously, in the States. It's... I, I, a short answer is yeah. I'd love. I'd, I think that would be a great idea. That you're not going to come and, and bully me, basically, because if you come and prod me, we're going to prod back. But who's got most to lose is is ultimately is, is is one of the questions. And what's your risk appetite? Because if if you're if if you inadvertently do something like we've we've, we've covered in depth, they're going to they're going to come and sort of beat beat your door down, aren't they? That you've done, you've you've committed, or you've you've crashed or not, you've crashed crashed something, or or brought a hospital down. But short answers, yeah, I think it's a great idea. But coordination would need to be on a national scale to do that. And then what umbrella would you put it under? Because 
a bit of its cyber militia force or something like that. Because ultimately, it's it, UK has, has historically been made up of hundreds of militias. Uh, that's our Eng, uh, English army and then British army came about from militias. But we're operating in, as I say, it's a 360 threat environment to coin a military phrase. It's You don't know where, when your next attack's coming. You don't know where it's coming from. You've got an idea, and as I say, but ultimately what 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 it's, it's effects based and say that soldier coming out of me again what effect do we, would we want to have from getting back but coordination a bit key but yeah i'm, I'm all for that andy i think it's a great idea <laughs> thanks greg anything valid to add to that andy you're happy with us yeah, yeah I, I i suppose it, it's a tricky one. It's, it's a good conversation starter but i suppose you already do it in some sense and we always have done from a cyber warfare perspective but if you can step it back if you were to detect uh you pull in even internal intelligence from an employee you're going to get rid of them before they cause damage right and whether that be a soldier whether that be an employee and so forth you take steps you have controls in place to mitigate the outcome right so um it, it's from when we move into the warfare perspective and it works the same with you know i think most of you have worked with, with military before you you use your intelligence and you take that risk-based approach as 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 gregory said as keith said and shark said it's what is within your risk appetite and especially with what's going on in the world right now right at what stage do you act right do you act once it's happened do you act before it's happened and when it comes comes to shoring up the door as we're before when we all had one internet connection and a dmz and one firewall protecting us and or maybe four or five firewalls now our entry points are our members of staff. There are USB drives. There are cloud environments. There are multiple things, multiple doors to shore up. And all the time you're running around trying to secure all of them. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good way to get go. So it's not to almost say to condone doing it, but it's a way to think of well, what else can we do? Almost like circuit breakers in like like pro, like you would in in an in an OT environment probably to pick up on Rob's next next podcast but you can put pro, you can put protocol breaks in place at some stages right that just change the language so then the attack is not anymore or maybe look at I suppose attack herding which was you, you all know the concept you don't need to know where the attack's coming from or who's doing it but then you can redirect in in another angle right so sometimes even back in themselves so um, yeah just further things to think about really <laughs> well thanks very much and uh yeah i mean uh, if there's any further comments on any of the things here we can uh, get this wrapped up is there any further comments no i just want to okay. say thank you all very much uh it's been a pleasure yeah thank you very much keith well so yeah i'm, I'm yeah we'll leave, so we'll leave you there i mean i think uh so this has been evolutions uh, exchange podcast i want to take the opportunity to thank shaquille greg andy and keith for providing their insights on the topic and thank you for listening um if you'd like to get involved in any of our up and coming podcasts uh, reach out to me on linkedin or drop me an email at robert.wall evolutionjobs.co.uk and we'll see you next time